Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. You know, Mendocino County, Humboldt, and Trinity Counties in Northern California are considered, uh, in California, the Emerald Triangle, an area known for its legacy farmers and cultivators that many believe started the entire cannabis industry in the United States. My guest today is a second-generation craft cannabis farmer who served eight years in prison for growing the plant that he and his community love so much and depend on. Mr. John Casale, welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montalzar. Thank you so much, Montel. I, I really appreciate you taking the time today and, and really uh, educating the consumers and the people. What's so special about the Emerald Triangle and what we're doing here? You know, I, I tell you, and I think that's what we ought to do real, real quick is, well, let's give them some education. Before we start, I want to know a little bit more about your background. And, and your background really is part of the creation of the Emerald Tri- Triangle. So tell me a little bit about it, John. Well, tell me about your childhood, where you grew up, what it was like as a kid. You know, we moved to uh, to Southern Humboldt. Uh, I moved here with my mom and my stepdad back in the late 70s, still living on the same piece of property that I grew up on. Um, now I have a permitted farm um, here that I'm permitted by the county and permitted by the state of California. But back in those days, it was all, um, you know, it was illegal cultivation that we were doing to to supplement our income. And it was never about making a whole bunch of money for us. It was really about surviving in the country it was the back to the land movement. It was about creating a lifestyle of your own, something special and unique the way you wanted to. And we became very close um, with every different neighbor and community member here. And um, really for quite a long, long time, maybe 10 or 15 years, we, we kind of skated underneath the radar as, as far as enforcement. And as long as you didn't grow a lot of cannabis, um, they didn't really bother you. So we early from early on, we never really believed that you could be in trouble for growing cannabis. We thought you could get probation. Were you like five, six, seven, eight years old then? Yeah, I'm, I'm five years old. Um, we're in the country. Not not many other places in the world that uh, to grow up as a child is is better than this. And from the very beginning, from as early as 10 years old, I remember following my mother around. Um, helping her grow the vegetable garden, helping her grow fruit trees and, and helping her grow the cannabis. So cannabis for me at that early age was just like another plant. It was like growing a fruit tree or it was like growing a tomato plant. And that's how we, this community had always looked at that plant. And, you know, now at that point in time, California had not passed any legislation legalizing whatsoever. So you were again under the radar, but the radar got you. I mean, saw you, right? Yeah, the the radar the radar ended up getting me. It wasn't actually so much the radar. It was a, a guy at the end of our road, um, and you know, we jumped way ahead to, to 1992 um, when enforcement started to get worse. When Ronald Reagan had declared the war on drugs and really wanted to make examples of people that were growing this plant, um, mainly in the Emerald Triangle. And and what I what I realized you said a while ago was that. You know, this is a, a a place in the world, in California, where a multi-billion dollar industry really started. So that's what's so special about Southern Humboldt. And with federal legalization, the focal point, I believe, will be on the Emerald Triangle, the three counties. 
Humboldt County, Mendocino County, and Trinity County, because it's those things that we did back then that were illegal that really enabled this industry to um, identify with this plant and, and really move forward with legalization. And back then, before you know the feds came down, I mean, this was a pretty close-knit community, correct? Yeah, because um, we all had to really trust each other with our lives. I mean, and when I say that, just to explain, is that whenever a convoy, an eradication team would come out and try to eradicate the, the cannabis that was growing in the woods, you know, we would all know when they were driving on the roads, we would communicate with one another and we would let each other know. We, we protected one another. We knew that if they were on the road that led to my house, that I better, they better call Johnny or I better call, uh, you know, another guy and, and let them know and give them heads up so they could leave the property in case they did um, show up at their place. And let's see, do you, you literally, well, you asked your mother to help co-sign and buy you a piece of property at age 15. Is that right? So Montel, I really fell in love with growing all types of plants and, and really begged my mother who was, was raised Christian to let me have my, my own 10 plants because I wanted to experiment around like she was showing me each and every plant individually has different characteristics and needs different attention. Every strain isn't grown the same way. So we had to learn by experimenting around. There was times we put birth control pills on these plants. They were rusty nails we put on these plants. We pulled the plants instead of cutting them at the stalks and we dipped them in boiling water because we thought the terpenes would go to the flower. So I wanted to experiment in my own way. And so when I was 15, my mom gave me my first 10 plants with the conditions and with the understanding that none of this money could ever go for something fun like a motorcycle or a car. It could only go to an investment like my college investment or um, what I ended up doing was buying 11 acres along the Eel River. Um, and she had to co-sign on, on the deed of that, that property that I purchased. And so that was my first actual money that I ever made from cannabis. And really from that point forward, I was just, I was hooked. I fell in love with this plant. And so you're growing and you're distributing through then the gray market, but you're distributing. And what happened the day that your farm was raided? So or how many years did you open it? Did it get raided? So really I'm um, 18, 19 years old now, if we're jumping ahead, 1985, hmm. 1986. And my parents, you know, enforcement after Ronald Reagan declared the war on drugs started to get worse. They didn't like seeing helicopters. They didn't like to fear convoys driving down the road. And so they bought a commercial albacore boat, sailed around the world and spent 11 months out of the year fishing in the ocean. And I stayed back here with my best friend and really had fallen in love with growing this plant. And um, this old man down the end of our road ended up, uh, for some reason or another, not liking us or didn't agree with growing cannabis. And he was 90 years old. So he was set in his ways and had turned us into, um, a different organization that we were, we weren't very knowledgeable about, right? There's such a difference between state and federal laws, but when this guy turned us in, he turned us into a federal agency, so one morning I woke up, it was six o'clock in the morning. And a lot of times people would drop by my house and want to go surfing or fishing or, or do something fun. And um, so it was just like another day to me, six o'clock in the morning. 
And I walk out my sliding glass door and I'm met by 30 federal agents that um, are holding guns to my head and, you know, having me get on the ground. And it was just, it was pretty traumatic and it wasn't really anything that I thought would ever happen. I always truly believe that if you got busted for growing cannabis in Humboldt County, because everybody I knew grew cannabis, you would just get probation. And that's not the case. And in this case, did they arrest you on the spot or they didn't arrest you on the spot? You either had to, it to- was totally unlike anything I ever imagined. They came here with a search warrant, which is different than an arrest warrant. They spent the whole day here at my house, collected all the different things that they thought was um, viable to actually making a case against me, like trimming scissors, like other seeds that they found in little packets. And um, at the end of the day, they left. They gave me a little yellow speeding ticket like you'd receive if you were going too fast on the highway. And I didn't really see them for another year and a half when they showed back up here at the same did, house. Did you continue to grow during that year and a half? Well, to be honest, I, you know, I, I waited a little while. And then I just thought a lot of times they mess up. They in, in the way the feds work, they're they're pretty much if they charge you for a case, it's like 90 percent conviction rate. So I figured and I rationalized in my own head that these guys must have messed up. They took some money. They took some stuff and they left. And so, yeah, I started growing again and I was OK. That was just a little bump in the road. And here we go. But when they showed up with an arrest warrant, I was quickly I quickly learned that it wasn't just a little bump in the road. It was for the next three years after that, when they charged me, it was a $275,000 bail that my mom had to put up her house, her boat, everything that she owned. It was going to court and really trying to convince the judge that we weren't bad people. This is how we lived and we would never hurt anybody. That was my goal. And that was my challenge. I said I was guilty for growing the cannabis. That wasn't a, you know, that wasn't what he was trying to decide on. I just thought I could um, really explain to him who I was inside and that um, once he realized that I was a good person and I would never hurt anybody, how could you go to jail for, for growing a plant? Yep. And then all of a sudden that gavel came down and said 10 years. Well, yeah, a little bit before that, you know, during some of the times we went to court, you know, he asked for clarification um, from the prosecutor, like things like, what is the bud part of the plant? The scissors that they found at my house that the, the, the prosecutor tried to say that because I had 13 pairs of scissors, that meant I had 13 pairs of workers. And the, the seeds that I had here must have meant that I had prior grows and I wasn't a first time nonviolent offender. So when the 100 people from Humboldt County went on the journey to the courthouse on sentencing day and they all sat sat there behind me in support of this guy that would never hurt anybody. And the judge stood up and said, I would want nothing more to do than to veer down below the mandatory minimums, which was 10 years to life in prison for a first time nonviolent offender. Um, He gave me the lower end of those guidelines and I received 120 months, 10 years in jail, which in federal court, you do 85% of your time. And I did get a, a 10 months off of my sentence for a drug program that I took there. And so I did eight years um, in total. And then I had five years probation. So, you know, this this what's at stake for, for me and for this community is is unreal at this moment. And I want nothing more than to, to help them, because when I returned home from jail after 3000 days, 
I had 50 people here from this community here to support me and to say that they love me because they had they had really put their lives in my hands by allowing me to know what they did. And the way the feds work is they want you to cooperate, right? They didn't want to put me in jail. They wanted me to give up somebody that they could go raid. And when I made that tough choice not to cooperate with them and, you know, I became who I told these people in this community who I was really who I was. And so um, they were here to support me and to give me silverware and forks and spoons spoons when I returned. And, you know, I, I'm fighting for them as much as I'm fighting for our farm right now. And like right now, I mean, in, in, because of the way California law is, are are you back at your farm? So I'm still living. I came right back here to the same piece of property and I was on federal probation. So I couldn't even grow underneath the 215 laws until I was off federal probation. And then I remember when I got off probation a little bit early, I remember growing my first 10 plants with my medical card and fell immediately back in love with growing this plant. And then when California offered to permit farms, um, I signed up for that and became the fourth existing farm in Humboldt County to be permitted. And now I have my annual licenses with the state of California. And it feels totally amazing to be able to share our lives work with with the consumer and with with people in general. And, and now, are you were you grandfathered in like in some sort of social equity program? So yeah, you know that that's um, we don't know how that's going to eventually affect us. But most of the farms in Humboldt County were what they call grandfathered in. So if you could prove to them that you were growing a certain size cannabis farm prior to legalization, that's what they felt comfortable in grandfathering you in, in the permitting process. So I was able to show them through satellite pictures that I had 5,000 square feet of cannabis that I was growing illegally, that I had to sign an affidavit that I was growing that illegally, how that might work against us later in life. We'll see. But, um, but that's how I became 5,000 square feet of, of cannabis farm. And, you know, there's other farms that are um, I think the biggest ones here in Humboldt County are up to eight acres, but most of them are typically like 10,000 square feet. And, and I mean, what is the attitude now? I mean, California has gone through so many, I was, I was actually in the business in California for a little while and just found that it's just insane the way the regulations are from one municipality to the next and the next and the next and the next and I'm out. But um, give me an idea of the landscape right now. You know, the landscape um, and and even after being in jail and seeing so many bitter and angry people, I really trained myself to always find the positive in every situation. Unfortunately, my mother passed away when I was in jail and I, and, you know, I, I had to really dig deep and, and rely on this community. And, and at least my mother knew how much I cared for her um, and all those things. And so when I when I got out of jail, you know, I always wanted to look at the bright side of everything. and. Right now, over 50 to 60% of the small farmers in the Emerald Triangle won't make it past this year. They've created such a nightmare by the oversupply of cannabis in California by continuing to permit farms without the correct amount of retail shops to distribute that. So this year, I think the numbers look like over 16 to 17, 18 million pounds of cannabis that can be produced with the, the farms, 
but there's only an ability through the amount of retail shops that are permitted to get rid of three or 4 million pounds. So there's like, you know, 12, 13, 14 million pounds that have nowhere to go. So that's, you know, that's, that's killing the small farmer that's driven the price point down to $300 a pound for bulk product, which looks like a hundred dollars a pound to trim looks like your, your, uh, your county, um, cultivation fees, your state cultivation fees, your water board fees, your fish and game fees, all your expenses that it costs you to grow the cannabis and your time and your energy and all the mistakes that you make on the way. So there's really no, no money left in it for the small farmers. And in a lot of ways, what I'm coming to understand is some of these big businesses really don't care if they make money for the first four or five years, because if they can eliminate all the competition, they will be the last man standing. And when federal legalization comes, you know, they'll, they'll own all market share. So um, we're competing with the big boys and, you know, I'm as small a farm as you get here in Humboldt County. Um, but what we have that they don't have is we have uh, authenticity. We have 45 to 50 years of knowledge in it comes across to the consumer that we're unique and we're special and we're growing strains that nobody else in the world has our family genetics. And so even though there is an oversupply problem in, in California, the small farmers are really growing their, you know, their family genetics, which I can produce maybe a hundred or 200 pounds of uh, a strain that I used to grow with my mother called Paradise Punch or White Thorn Rose. And it's really at that point for the consumer to decide whether or not they really enjoy that strain. Got it. Does that make sense? Did I make any sense, sir? No, it makes a lot of sense, my friend. Okay. And, you know, I mean, and, and with that in mind, where do you think, though, California is going to go? I understand you're saying it's going to end up being with the big boys. However, isn't there enough pushback from the legacy folks like yourself? that may change the tide in San Francisco? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Well, I would surely hope so. And that's what they're saying. And and there's probably no other farmer in California that pushes back on them harder than I do. And and um, the reason I say that is I, you know, have personal meetings with Nicole Elliott, who's the head of the DCC, um, and really confide in her to really trying to do the right thing. And she's saying she wants to help the small farmers. So they're giving grants to some of the small farmers to really help them through this tough time. Farmers that are having provisional licenses that haven't gotten their annual license, you know, they're trying to help them out and and make it work for them. But really, until federal legalization, I don't know if we're going to be able to uh, last much longer. It just doesn't seem seem right. And in that regard, I mean, you know, here, just, I'm not asking you to crystal ball, but I'm just thinking, 
what do you think the the chances are? I mean, you, I was talking about it on a recent podcast. You know what people don't recognize, and I think is there's just so it's so insightful when you look at the fact that it was what I, I can't even remember now. I think it was a month ago that the president of the United States held a press conference, came out, made all these statements about what he was going to do with cannabis and the fact that he was going to, you know, assign his folks to figure out how they can quickly go through the process of, of uh, uh, not just decriminalizing, but uh, rescheduling cannabis. He said that not one news station has carried a story about it ever since. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's my understanding that, you know, some of those, it was, it was worded in a way that I don't know if it even allowed any federal cannabis prisoners out of jail. Because, you know, you put some kind of guidelines on it, like petty criminals or, or something like that. Well, there's no petty cannabis criminals in federal prison. And there, uh, weren't any, there, there weren't any at the time that he made that statement. You're right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it looked good on the books in, in front of the media. But it ultimately, at the end of the day, somebody that like myself that has a federal record for growing cannabis doesn't help at all. Didn't help me. I still can't go to New Zealand. I still can't go to Canada. And, you know, I'm still fearful of, of traveling around and having that on my record. And, I mean, what do you think about the fact that he, was, he made the statement that he thinks that he's going to try to make some sort of change in scheduling or in decriminalization? Do you think that if you had the crystal ball, wouldn't you think that might happen? Or do you think it might even? I, I, I've been one who's not just a naysayer or just trying to be Debbie Downer. However, I don't see anything changing on a national level for at least the next six to eight years. Yeah, you know, it, um, hopefully he deschedules from a schedule one to a schedule two. That would be progress. I think that's the next step. When I don't know, but I think you're you're right. And and unfortunately, quite a few ninety. The numbers I'm hearing are ninety to ninety five percent of the cannabis business in California aren't going to make it. And so uh, it's unfortunate, especially for a lot of these legacy farmers, um, because as it said quite often here is. Um, Humboldt County, Humboldt County is like the Amazon jungle of genetics. And um, it's really my hope that some of my family genetics will someday be experimented around with and maybe they can cure autism or cancer or glaucoma or some kind of ailments that we have. And without federally being legal, they can't do all these experiments that really need to take place. And unfortunately, if my farm doesn't make it or some of these small farms don't make it, we might lose that opportunity to test their genetics and really apply them to some of these patients that might need it. And like you just said, like the Amazon jungle, we're seeing what's happening down there in places like Brazil, where, you know, they're in Colombia, where they're allowing some of the jungle to get burned away. So, you know, those genetics lost forever. For sure. For sure. And, you know, we, we're, we're doing our best to educate the consumer and really I, letting them recognize what makes us different from from big ag so a lot of us have pursued different certifications like sun and earth certification that i have a fish friendly certification that this farm has it's the only one in the state of california we also have a we're working with cannabis for conservancy um, who's sanctioned by fish and wildlife so we're trying to separate us and show the consumer that the product that we're producing is some of the best product in the world that you can put in your into your body. And it's not really about the THC. It's about the whole cannabinoid profile, the terpenes, right? 
of course, people, well, you know, and I think part of the problem has been the fact that, you know, we've done a great job, and, and I should say we, this industry has done a fairly decent job in trying to educate from B to B, but we've done such a piss poor job of educating B to C. So yeah. the, the normal consumer doesn't understand all the other viable components. They don't understand there's well over 250 identified now to date cannabinoids that are there. When you start looking at the V, the A's, and all the, the different different types of a single, you know, like THCA, THCV, THC, you know, um, or CBDV, CBDA. And, and what people don't get is the fact that a lot of those minor cannabinoids are, you know, we call them minor cannabinoids that have been known for such a long time. There was a period of time when, you know, up in Northern California, people were trying to grow those out because they were trying to push the THC level up higher. And we stunted some of the growth of things like CBC, you know, and, uh, and, and, and so by doing that, we've not allowed the consumer to understand the other components of the plant that are just as viable or more viable than just the THC. Not yet, but on that same topic, um, over the last year and a half, uh, Huckleberry Hill Farms and Moonmade Farms, who um, is a kind of a somebody I started with early on. We've been working with Columbia University in New York, um, uh, a chemist there called his name is Colin. And Colin is like the most amazing person. He's been taking our product and he's been testing it in in his labs there. And what he's finding is that the California testing facilities here are very inaccurate and they only test for a certain amount. So the white thorn rose is uh, one of our farm favorites here. And when I get the, the COA test, the testing back from the state of California, it shows that it's 1.5% terpenes. And, you know, there's um, very few cannabinoids and, and all these things. But when we tested in Columbia, U Columbia University, the, the most prevalent terpene that white thorn rose has it, it called selenodiene isn't even tested for in California. It has 444 different cannabinoids that aren't even tested for here in California. So it seems like just recently the state of California is starting to address some of these issues and we need to do a full spectrum test. So the consumer ultimately at the end of the day can identify what terpenes and what cannabinoids that they like. So if they can't find white thorn rose, they can look for other products that have those same profiles because what makes me feel good might not make you feel good. And, right. So and, and listening to you talk, I'm very impressed. You know, a lot of the right terminology you understand cannabis and it's it really, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air to talk to people like you. And that's why it's really important for all of us to, to show up at these retail shops and to talk directly to consumers, because once we talk to them, they can really identify who's just faking it to make it or who's authentic and real and true. Well, you know, I, I launched, I, I've launched my own THC brand in Massachusetts and, you know, I'm, I'm the formulator myself, and I've been doing this for 20 years. It's a lot of people that I just got involved with cannabis in the last four or five, but I'm part of the reason why, you know, 17 or 18 of the states have passed legal uh, medical cannabis. I'm part of the reason why that happened. Um, you know, I travel around this country back when it wasn't vogue and, you know, it wasn't, you know, interesting to a lot of other people literally, uh, literally running around the country trying to get people to understand the viability of cannabis as a medication. 
Yeah, well, that, that's awesome work. That's the work that we all need to take the time and do. You know, our farm, you know, all the farmers up here are really trying to find ways to cut corners, right, on the back end. So it's just my girlfriend and I that are running a, a 5,000 square foot farm. So it really takes most of our time throughout the summertime. So six, seven months out of the year, we're working here on the farm every single day. You know, I'm up at four o'clock in the morning. And I, and I love doing what, I, what, I, what we do. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It just feels very, very exhausting. And, um, you know, I wish I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, not so much for us, but for all the families and all the people that have been doing it here for the last 40 or 50 years, because I don't know what happens to a, a community that has been built around cannabis. Like every volunteer fire department, every technical rescue team, every school that now doesn't even have pencils or paper, that was all supported by this, this gray market cannabis industry that um, really built this community. Right. Well, it's crazy how, you know, I, I wondered how, what happened to your farm while you were incarcerated? So we, we tried to, to, you know, it was an illegal cannabis farm back then, so it didn't carry over into the legal market. But um, we did try to rent the place and generate some money that didn't work out so well. So my stepmother just basically took care of the house and everything. And so when I returned, it was just, uh, you know, the property I had to get it back into shape. All the brush and all the trees grew. Um, but it wasn't until after I was off federal, pro federal probation that I really entertain the idea about becoming a legal cannabis farm in California. Were you able to, were you able to farm other things, fruits, vegetables, and those things? Oh yeah. We got a whole vegetable garden. We had a weed out of the whole year. Um, we have, you know, maybe 15, 20 different fruit trees that we enjoy the fruit off of. If we can beat the bear to it, or if we can beat the, uh, the crows and all that kind of stuff too. But, um, it's really just a different way of, of living and, um, you know, it's self, you have to be self-motivated and you get up in the morning because, you know, I set the alarm and I don't have to answer to anybody except myself and my girlfriend. So um, it's just a different way of life and it's amazing. And, you know, people come here for the most amazing cannabis in the world, but they really move here for this community. They move here for those people that care about you and I, those people that really, it's not money motivated around here so much as it is um, making sure that this community is okay. I'm sure. Look, is now you know you talked about, and, and but I'm, I want my listeners to understand who they are. Tell me a little bit about this camp task force and, and how it impacts your community. And is it still operating now? Yeah, um, actually, the state of California just developed a new task force, and I, I don't know the acronym for that, but it basically all the different acronyms did the same thing. So we from from 1985. Um, Till now dealt with camp campaign against marijuana planting, met marijuana enforcement team, Comet, Green Sweep, Black Hawk helicopters. And it's just been a an onslaught of different um, eradication teams that really have tried to stop us from growing cannabis. And and wait, I wait, wait, wait. does the eradication team have um you know, like a map that says, well, this is a legal farm now, so we can't mess with them, but we can mess with this one. How do they do this? Well, the reason I said before that this was the bullseye of a dartboard for where a multi-billion dollar industry started was because the way camp and all these enforcement teams work is they get money from the federal government. They usually start in Southern California and they work their way up to where whatever money they have left at the end of the year, they exhaust 
at the Emerald Triangle in Southern Humboldt. And they're using helicopters to do aerial surveillance, airplanes to do aerial surveillance. And once they take pictures, they're able to either get warrants or send their ground troops, which sometimes consist back in the old days of 10 to 20 different vehicles, a convoy, as we would call them, with law enforcement people that would come and cut down the weed, or they would drop in with big old on wires from the helicopters and drop into the remote areas, cut down the cannabis, put them into big nets, and then haul them back and burn that cannabis. So this was the cat and mouse game that we were always playing to try to evade eradication. And there was times that we actually, we grew in trees on platforms because they would always look from these airplanes or these helicopters onto the ground. And, um, when, the, when I ended up getting busted, we were growing underneath trees and underneath brush. So we had a lot more plants in the same amount of area that now I have one plant. So those numbers that um, were sometimes in the thousand that would possibly produce 20 pounds we're talking about, they went by plant count. And so if you had a thousand to 3000 plants, even if you were trying to make 20 pounds, that was a 10 year to life mandatory minimum. And we didn't understand that. We were Hill kids. We we just knew local rules and regulations. And that was probation. Right. Crazy. Yeah. And camp is still out there or the, uh, whatever the new task force is out there still trying to eradicate growers now. Well, the, the state of California has convinced the, the, the people that the problem with the industry isn't by them continuing to give permits in California. The problem is the illegal growth. That's what they're that's what they're portraying. That's what they're convincing everybody. So in order to combat that, they needed to uh, they needed to to create another uh, another enforcement team that would help reduce the amount of illegal growth, which in return then would help the California regulated market. And that's just not the case. That's not how it's going to go down. Um, there's just too many farms, you know, when you're commercial salmon fishing, there's a limited amount of commercial licenses and you can sell a license from one boat to the next. So basically at the end of the day, they'll just continue to give cannabis licenses for cultivation in California. My license isn't worth anything. This is on my family home. If I wanted to get any value out of my cannabis license, I would have to sell my family home with that license on it. That's insane. Yeah. Insane. So, I mean, how is, are, is your business surviving right now? What's going on? Well, because I've I've taken the pathway of not having any employees, limiting the amount of expenses I have, being fortunate enough to have my my family's legacy strains, I've been able to overcome the oversaturation part. Really highlight some of these uh, strains that I name, like white thorn rose and sweet marlene and and um, amalfi and really have a connection with the consumer that's really created a demand for that. Um, and so my farm is fortunate enough that uh, this place was left to me. I don't, every farm is different because they're in a different financial situation. So um, we're okay right now. Um, will the price continue to get be driven down more? Probably. Um, I just don't see that relief inside and it's going to be very interesting and all the different counties here in, in California, and especially the Emerald Triangle, are, are feeling the repercussions of the cannabis industry that supported them, um, really affecting all the businesses. You're seeing doors close 
um, in Garberville and in Eureka and, and in Mendocino County. It's, it's pretty sad right now, but, um, you know, I like to believe that change, there's always good things that come with change and maybe we don't know what that is right now, but um, it's going to reveal itself soon. And I think we have something very special and unique here um, with this cannabis. Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, the legacy growers and the people who are working like you to actually really care about the plant enough to develop out strains that they know are medically efficacious to all. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people who, I don't necessarily believe the term adult use or recreational use. I think that's a bullshit term because anybody who gravitates to cannabis is gravitating to cannabis for a reason. It may be some underlying medical reason that they don't even want to admit to from not being able to sleep to not being able to relax. Those are all medical issues. So I'm not a, I'm not a real big believer in the idea of rec, but I, I believe in the fact that what you're doing is growing a plant and providing a product to the marketplace that people can actually discern a difference in. Yeah, that, that's, that's our hope for sure. Um, we need uh, not only to educate the consumers, but we need those consumers to really align themselves with our values and to support the small farmer. So ironically, it's come full circle. It's really up to the consumer whether or not the small farmer makes it. Those people that have decided not to walk into a commercial grocery store and decides to go into Whole Foods because they understand that that product that they're putting into their body is better for them. Um, if we continue you and I and, and the rest of the small farmers to educate these people, they're going to understand and they're got only going to see the difference. They're going to feel the difference. And I, I, I really look forward to that day for sure. I do too, my friend. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom, sharing your knowledge and, and telling us about what it was like and, and, now what it's going to become. I hope that, you know, more and more people will listen to uh, people like yourself. Give them some information about where they want to go. It's Huckleberry Farms, or where can they go to get more information about you? So, um, you know, I, I have a website that's uh, pickhumboldt.com, or the best place to really interact with me, especially like at four in the morning, is uh, on Instagram. It's Huckleberry Hill Farms. Um, we do a, a lot of our marketing um, and branding uh, on that. And I, I like to interact with the consumer really on there. And um, yeah, so the, those two places are the best place. And tell them about those great strains that you're growing. What are the two, what is Rose something? What was the name of them? You know, White Thorn Rose won, won the Emerald Cup uh, this last couple of years. Uh, we got Mom's Weed, we got Sweet Marlene and Amalfi, all strains that are bred to a strain that I used to grow with my mother was when I was 10. Wow. Wow. Incredible. So if people want more information, they now know where to go. John, I can't say thank you enough for being a part of the show today. You're always welcome back here whenever you want to chat a little bit. Love to chop it up with you. And um, I, I got to thank you. I wish you well. Well, thank you so much, Montel, for having me on and keep doing the magical work that you're doing. And we'll do the same here. And together, we're going to make a difference. I think we will, my friend. And make sure you keep tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin. 
And I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.